Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. We've talked on the show before about how hazy beginnings can be. Things that seem inevitable in hindsight are really more like a series of possible outcomes coalescing into something we now recognize as the start of a concrete period of time or group of people. But when it comes to the Soviet Union, it's the ending that seems muddy, while the beginning was actually quite well defined. There's a joke about Soviet Russia in there somewhere. Today, we'll be talking about what it was exactly that led to the collapse of the USSR. Let's begin. We're here on HI 101 with guest Dan McGinnis. Hi there. How's it going? Pretty well, thanks. Excited to have you back. I am excited to be back. And today we're going to be talking about uh, the end of the Soviet Union. I believe you came to me after uh, I posted the communism episode and asked me, hey, how did that whole thing go down? And initially, I was actually a little bit hesitant to do this episode because it's pretty recent. It is. Generally, the rule is about 20 years plus for history stuff to really be in the realm of history at all. And you asked me about that, and I went, ah, I think that kind of violates, oh, no. Oh, yep. no, that's more than yep. 20 years now. How old are you? You're now old. Don't, don't remind me. <laughs> so that was a little mini crisis when I realized that, yeah, this does absolutely fit into our timing. We are going to creep pretty close, and... To be honest, that 20 years is kind of a soft wall, but I, I think this is probably about the latest topic that I'd be willing to do for this show. It's it, one of the most uh, notable recent history things, I think, that, that fall past that 20-year mark. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and in a lot of ways, it is such a marker for the end of one era and the beginning of another that I think while there are things that are technically after that, it so informs our current events and our current society that I would feel uncomfortable necessarily getting into it. Things like, for example, the wars in the in the Balkans under the Clinton administration. They're they're just they're a little too close to stuff that's still going on today. That, but particular election cycles, even especially that especially that, that I, you know, technically the timing would be okay, but I think sort of societally speaking, it would be really stepping on some toes because one of the kind of grand paradoxes of history as it stands is that the more recent something, the more recently something has happened, the less good information we really have on it, which doesn't make a ton of sense, but really what you run into is Number one, we have more information the more recently it happened. We're just inundated with information. 
Number two, there's still a lot of incentive for people to cover up certain aspects of it or spin certain aspects of it that make it a little bit harder to interpret properly. And three, we haven't gone through this process of sort of historical synthesis where we've broken down different viewpoints, argued different points uh, about the about the events and sort of come to some sort of general conclusion or or general consensus about not only what happened, but what it means for the rest of the world at large. When something is this recent, there's there's a lot of people who hold a lot of different viewpoints about all of the things that we're going to talk about today, to the point that when you ask the very straightforward question, you know, why did the Soviet Union fall? I don't know exactly. We're going to talk about a lot of different things that might have contributed to it or, or almost certainly did contribute to it. But as, as far as being able to give an, an actual simple answer to that question, it's, it's not going to happen. I, I have to disagree. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the reason that the Soviet Union fell is because Roger Moore as James Bond defeated them. He just defeated the Russians. That makes me very sad. However, if you replace Roger Moore with Ronald Reagan, then boy, are we going to get into... <laughs> well, they, they're basically the same person. Some very, very plausible theories because a lot of people feel that way about Ronald Reagan. I think that what we're going to do just in terms of organizational purposes is really focus on the Soviet side of things because I'm not that interested in 1980s American politics and culture in so far as it relates to the fall of the Soviet Union. A lot of people seem to think that the the Americans just, they defeated communism. They stuck it to those Ruskies and that's the end of it. One of the few stands I'm actually going to make on a lot of this stuff is like, not really. There was, there was absolutely some contributing factors. Uh, I believe Reagan said, tear down this wall and the wall was torn down. We, so. will, we will get to Reagan saying, tear down this wall. I am so sick of that soundbite as being like a major thing because... Uh, Pivotal. Come on. I think a lot of people have said tear down this wall and it just didn't happen. Anyways, there's absolutely a lot of contributing factors from, from American influences. But, you know, ultimately what we're going to watch here is the Soviet Union kind of tear itself apart from the inside out. And at the end of the day, you know, this is this is less of a defeat and more of an implosion which i think is almost more interesting in a lot of ways especially the way that the rest of the the cold war went it's it's interesting to see the the system really fall apart from the inside out rather than some sort of uh grand maneuver um by other players oh it's more nuanced any any time a large political entity like a a country or or an empire falls apart from the inside i think it's a better narrative Oh, absolutely. Completely agree. I think the place that we really need to start with this story is with Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the final leader of the USSR. And he was kind of an interesting guy in in a lot of senses, but the main thing that distinguished him from previous leaders was that he was a lot younger than the rest of them. I know that seems like kind of a almost trivial difference, but let's break down who came before Gorbachev. We had Leonid Brezhnev, who led the Soviet Union from 1964 to 1982. Oh, wow. He was in there for 18 years. That's uh, the only person who was longer was, was Stalin. And when he died, he was 75 years old. So in 82, he died at 75. 
Next, we have Yuri Andropov, who was only leader from 80, uh, 82 to 84, died at 69. Konstantin Chernenko followed him up, was only there for a single year, was sick for most of it, and died at age 73. These guys were all people who had come up like under Stalin. They had made, they had made their start under the Stalinist regime, and they were part of this old guard to the point that the term gerontocracy is used to describe <laughs> Soviet leadership at the beginning of the 80s. And this, this is a term that's been applied to other places in, in history, but the Soviet Union is a, an especially notable example of this. And that really just means that all the leaders are so much older than the average population that simply by being part of a different cohort makes it much more difficult to lead um, because of just the, the disconnect due to age and experience. Well, given the weirdness of Soviet Russia, it, it is, was it also the case that people that age, the older generation, were the only ones that were allowed to rule? That that the younger people, until that cohort died out, uh, they they wouldn't let younger people in. Well, absolutely, I would I would say that's almost exclusively the reason all of the, all of these men were so old. When we're talking about who leads the Soviet Union at this point, it's really important to understand the organization of power within the USSR, namely that the the Communist Party, whoever leads the Communist Party is the de facto ruler of the entire uh, Union. Did they have separate parties? No. This, the Communist Party was the only legal political party. There's something called Article 6 of the, the Soviet Constitution that outlaws every party that is not the communist party so what's the point in having having a distinction between the government itself and the party because the average citizen didn't need to be part of the party but everyone in a position of any sort of power needed to also be politically active within that party so that meant that any elections that happened quote-unquote elections were essentially theater it means that if you wanted to get into any sort of position of power you had to become part of the party and demonstrate good party values. It was a method of controlling the government through political ideology. Really the big failure or one of the big failures of the Soviet Union was that the idea behind a communist revolution is that at some point when the revolution is over, you're supposed to relinquish power and give it back to the people, right? It's supposed to be not necessarily anarchic, but definitely led by the people at a at sort of a ground level. That seems um, to be the whole point of communism. It really, really is. The Communist Party basically did the exact opposite by consolidating power within its own ranks and refusing to relinquish it in any way, shape, or form. And by that definition, the Communist Party was probably misnamed. They were essentially a, a dictatorship supported by the constitution of the nation and i mean any dictator is going to be supported by whatever constitution they put forward but while espousing all of these communist values about you know hard work and rejection of of uh, capitalism and all of this they were also perpetuating this this um authoritarian rule over the people that's that's entirely funneled through what is technically not a government organization because the a, a political party isn't isn't actually part of the government, right? A political party is an entity that organizes and uh, aids people in getting elected to a government, right? Which is, I know, a, a kind of a, a hazy distinction, 
No, it's meaningful in in actually democratic countries. Where exactly. There are multiple parties. So. But what they're doing by making it the only legal party is using that meaningful distinction that uh, that would be there in a multi-party system, and using it to sort of indirectly control the government while pretending that they don't have, and even pretending is a is a strong word, but on paper not having a, a firm dictatorship hold over the government of the USSR. So the other thing that this leads to is that by being a part of the party, you basically have to, number one, pay your dues in, in like a very real sense of, of acting in a way that's in accordance with the party values. But it also means that the the party itself is exempt from any you know nepotism rules or or uh, any sort of governing uh, rules in terms of who makes it to leadership who makes it to positions of power within the party and so what you get is this corruption of you know people picking their their favorite uh, other people in the party and bringing them to positions of power in a way that the people don't actually have any direct control over whatsoever. It's all internal politics. It's all internal um, power dynamics uh, inside the party. So while there is technically a, pres- or a prime minister of Russia, he doesn't really have any real power because the person calling the shots is the, uh, the general secretary of the Communist Party in that he could recall the prime minister and replace him with somebody else at a moment's notice because... His uh, his post as prime minister is one that's appointed within the party. Even it's a party-based system as opposed to an individual elected official. Exactly. Yeah. So really complicated there. And I, I, I get that the distinction can be a little bit hazy, but it's it's a way of exerting extra power over the government while going through non-governmental uh, channels. Yeah. Because of all that, these people are basically elevating their peers and people they've worked with and people they respect and people they want favors for in positions within the party, which results in basically a very, very insular kind of inbred party in a lot of ways. And one that's very, very hard to crack uh, into in any meaningful way if you're not already part of that inner circle. So yeah, these guys starting to die off is, is, almost essential at this point in time because the leadership has gotten so stagnant and their leadership style, their policies, their their strategies for leading the country have in a lot of ways become extremely conservative. They're not interested in changing basically anything in order to move the country forward in any way. Brezhnev brings in Gorbachev basically knowing that this is eventually going to be a, a problem and identifying Gorbachev as uh, sort of a dynamic and and uh, strong-willed younger person who is you know potential leadership material but also knowing that he's not really going to be able to get Gorbachev into a leader's uh, position for some time until he's kind of groomed him moved him up through the ranks of the party in that sort of nominal way that you need to but Brezhnev died before he could get Gorbachev positioned properly right so these next two leaders Andropov and Chernenko uh, are both serving these really short terms while all this time Gorbachev is working his way towards the top of the party. So was Brezhnev a progressive in that? Uh, not not in any sense of the word. Brezhnev was a very, very uh, lackadaisical leader. He was very firmly entrenched in old ways of doing things. Then why would he select Gorbachev, who, you know, 
by by those lights it would be progressive and and um changing things why would he bring gorbachev in i think by the end of his life he was recognizing what a problem that was for the direction of the party and realizing that number one he couldn't himself change directions on any of this stuff because every leader of the soviet union up to this point has basically come to power in some sort of internal coup and he's looking at the situation going well that's going to be me if i try to you know change things now but also recognizing that getting a guy like gorbachev into position while it it does potentially bode well for the future of the the country is really really difficult to do in a way that would actually give him a shot at changing things he's he's a he's a conservative and has been a conservative for his entire leadership stint but the soviet union is really hurting by the time that he's done i have a section coming up in a little bit that is called uh the 80s were going pretty badly that is the title i have in my notes and it's absolutely true things are absolutely dismal for the country in 1979 they got themselves embroiled in the afghanistan war which is just a massive black hole for funds. The word um, embroiled usually doesn't imply success. No, it's it's not exactly one you want used in any any sense. They're also, you know, losing money quickly to falling oil prices. Like we'll get into a lot of this stuff. Yeah. But, you know, he's seeing the change is necessary and he's seeing that the only way to do uh, to to uh, invoke real change is getting somebody with fresh ideas into place. Gorbachev has already distinguished himself as a very strong leadership candidate with his work kind of lower down in, in party ranks. He was noticed by Brezhnev and kind of brought up, but you can only do these things so quickly in a, in a system that's that insular and that um, conservative on like a systemic level at this point. So in 1985, uh, Gorbachev ki- finally comes to office. He's only 54 years old, as opposed to all these other guys who are, you know, dying at 70 after a year or two in office. Spring buck. But I mean, in politics, that's actually pretty young. Oh, absolutely. You know, that's that's actually pretty reasonable. And, you know, people were using words like uh, more dynamic, more vital as a leader, which, I mean, I don't know if you've seen a picture of Gorbachev, but he doesn't look particularly dynamic. Stoic, maybe. Powerful, possibly. But, yeah. Anyways. But, I mean... The biggest change that he brought to Soviet politics, at least at the very beginning, because he's going to bring a lot of changes to Soviet politics, but the thing that he brought right out of the gate was he was much more willing to engage with the citizenship than previous leaders had been. All of these, you know, previous general secretaries would go out and they would make speeches about, you know, the greatness of of, uh, uh, Leninism, Marxism, Stalinism, all of this stuff, talking about how you know, powerful their country was, you know, how terrible the West was, but not like they were all very canned and they were all very like, you know, from a, from a podium, very far away from everybody. It was all very removed from the citizenship. Not soliciting lots of feedback. They seemed very canned almost, you know, they were, they were very, um, it's it's like they knew they had to talk to people, I guess, and so they were just reading off a bunch of party propaganda rather than actually engaging them in any meaningful way. Gorbachev was the first Soviet leader to kind of go, you know, guys, last couple of years it kind of sucked. Like we're not we're not doing super great. 
like we need to make some changes we need to shake things up like i know you guys are hurting because like everybody's hurting and it's okay to say that just because we're the soviet union doesn't mean that we can't make mistakes in fact what we should be doing is constantly striving for a more perfect version of communism and that means a scientific approach that means actually making changes actually trying to make improvements to our system and just because things have been done a certain way for decades doesn't mean that they're the best way to do them and we're starting to see that a little bit in our society well that that sounds like a a pretty significant shift from stalin's approach of reacting to similar problems by starving ukraine to death well, just chanting everything's fine over yeah. and over. Yeah. And then yeah. glaring at the rest of the states in the union and saying everything's fine. Everything's right? fine. Everything's fine. If you disagree, um, I hear Siberia is very nice this time of year. Yeah. yeah. Much need of laborers there. <laughs> I hear there's a I hear there's a deficit of laborers up in Siberia right now. If you want to complain, lots of work there. Anyways, that was dark. Yeah, why are we smiling? You didn't need to you didn't need to admit that. This is an audio format. No one could see us. I like to bring people in. <laughs> it's real theater of the mind. The other thing that Gorbachev did right away was basically start sweeping the leadership clean. He kind of went to a lot of these older ministers and went, "Listen, dude, you're 84. Why don't you just like retire and enjoy the rest of your life? You know you can leave." Which was absolutely significant because this wasn't something that people had been doing before. They were, you know, they weren't asking anyone to retire because they were, they didn't want to retire themselves. And it, it was really just kind of a, you needed one of the cards in the house of cards to topple and just bring the rest down. I mean, he swept out like a full 40% of the top leadership of the Soviet Union, not in any violent way. It wasn't a coup. It wasn't. It was just kind of like just, a, you know, you can retire if you want. offering like, a convenient retirement package. I can, or I can move you to an easier post or, you know, he shuffled a lot of cabinets around. He made a lot of changes that way and brought in a lot of people who were kind of a little more willing to make changes within the party and within the government of the, of the union. And we're, I keep talking about the union. I, I, I guess we should maybe be clear about the organization of the USSR a little bit. The Union of Soviet Socialist Republics was, at least on paper, a federation of about 15 different countries that were all led by a central government in Moscow uh, under the leadership of the the Soviet Communist Party. And I, I say nominally because really, once you were in the Soviet Union, you didn't have a lot of leeway for dissent. It was very centrally run. And, you know, supposedly independent countries like say ukraine or you know uh albania lithuania georgia belarus all of these places they could claim to you know or they could they could try to dissent in certain ways but you know as hungary found out in 1956 you probably shouldn't dissent too hard or you might be brought back into line they tried to form a republic in 1956 despite being part of the union of soviet socialist republics and were suppressed i suppose you could say not much room for secession they were invaded by the soviet army the red army and informed that they would in fact be remaining a socialist country so yeah it's there there are technically more than one country in this union but 
in reality, we're talking about a single political entity under the one communist party. So now Gorbachev has made this big grand entrance with all these claims that he's going to make changes and he's going to perfect the science of communism and, and you know, work away at these, these problems that they're having. Um, takes him a couple of years to actually come up with some concrete policies, concrete ideas of how he's going to do this exactly, because they're facing like a lot of different problems. And he basically comes up with two main policies that he's going to use to fix at least a lot of the problems. And uh, most of the stuff that we're going to, going to talk about are uh, today are going to fall under the umbrella of at least one of these two policies. So we're going to learn a couple Russian words here. They're Perfectly pronounced, important. I'm sure. First one is perestroika, and the second one is glasnost. Perestroika means restructuring. And restructuring was kind of this very vague umbrella term that basically meant that they intended to kind of streamline and optimize the socialist system, because at this point in time, they're completely choked with bureaucracy, which shouldn't really be any surprise whatsoever in a system that rewards people for joining the party and then, uh, you know, gives them sometimes meaningful and sometimes less meaningful tasks within that party to perform. They were very, very bloated. And so he, Gorbachev, intended on getting rid of some of that excess weight and taking things like, for example, the centrally planned economy and spreading the uh, responsibility and the work involved in that around a little bit to make it a little bit more responsive to the actual needs of the citizenship, which makes a little bit of sense because the way the economy was working at this point and the way that, that specifically production under uh, that specifically production in this economy worked was that if you owned, let's say a steel mill, you didn't make steel and then take orders from railroads and construction companies for that steel and fill those orders. What you did was you got a message from Moscow that said, uh, we need you to produce X amount of steel this month. And then you did. You just did. And sometimes you didn't produce enough steel because Moscow didn't figure that we could spend that much money on steel manufacturing that month. And sometimes you produced way too much and no one needed all that steel and it just sat around but that's what the the central planners decided was best for steel production for this month you phrased that as if you owned a steam steel mill was that just for exposition or, or was there actual private ownership of things like uh manufacturing companies it was entirely exposition okay uh there had no, there had been no private ownership since 1928 when uh, Vladimir Lenin put in place his new economic policy, which completely abolished private ownership. Just I so. suppose managed a steel mill would have been a, a more accurate way of putting it. Right. Um, if you were the person in charge of making all of that happen, which most likely meant that you were a party member, to be honest with you. All of those quotas are coming from central planning in Moscow, and they had very little actual basis in reality. Because that wasn't what was important to uh, central planners. It wasn't about running a, a functional and, well, I shouldn't say functional, but it wasn't about running a, a streamlined and responsive economy. It was about making sure that everyone had enough work. And it was really, really clunky 
it was very clunky. It was very poorly implemented because uh, like they're, they're managing a massive, massive country. They're managing 15 countries worth of production. And how can you accurately respond to that in every possible scenario? Right. It's, it's, it's too centralized. You can absolutely get too bogged down in that much centralization. And they were running into that problem I mean, it had always been a problem in the Soviet Union, but in a lot of in a lot of cases, the economy had been doing well enough that they could just kind of push through that, and it worked out okay. Especially with things like the Cold War and the space race mm-hmm. providing uh, ample need for large manufacturing and and visible economic projects. Absolutely, but the economy had taken this downturn. They couldn't really afford that much waste in their production sector. And they decided that, you know, this just isn't working out. So in 1987, Gorbachev passes what's called the law of the law on state enterprise. And it meant that businesses and again, I use the word business kind of loosely because it's really kind of a collective run by the workers ostensibly and an arm of the party in reality. Uh, these businesses could match production to demand now rather than just going off of quotas coming straight from Moscow. This is intended to get around this exact problem that we're talking about here. But they're also required to become self-financing, which means that, yes, they're selling off these steel beams to construction companies, but they're also responsible for paying tax back into the state rather than getting sort of an operations voucher, essentially. So really what this is, is kind of the first step towards privatization, really. He's asking these these public businesses to operate like a private business in the hopes that it will kind of mitigate some of this, uh, both shortages and wastes at the same time, which is what the centralized planning was giving them. Then in 1988, the law and cooperation allowed private ownership of businesses. Again, this is the first time in 60 years that this has been allowed. The idea is that you're supposed to go in on owning a business with a bunch of your fellow workers, which is sort of a communist ideal, right? But in practice, what that meant was that individuals were able to kind of start up their own competing businesses and private ventures started to pop up, which is starting to look a lot like a market economy. It's still functioning under this communist system, which again is is not a market economy at all. Um, there's a lot of weird idiosyncrasies there. For example, um, their, their currency, the ruble, isn't actually convertible. Like you can't convert it to American dollars, for example, you can't really trade with anyone outside the Soviet sphere of influence, which is also a problem for their economy, because when you cut yourself off from the world in that sense, you know, yeah, you can have really good years when your production is up. But if your your production goes down, you can't sell things off to other markets to stimulate the economy. It distorts everything. Yeah, absolutely. But then he did something that was probably a step too far. He opened up ventures to foreign investment to get around that insular problem, which means that investors from outside of the Soviet Union could inject not just cash flow, which they desperately needed, but also technology, production methods, raw materials, any of that stuff could be imported into the Soviet Union. And those are areas where by the late 80s, they were severely lacking in comparison to not just the United States, but basically the rest of the developed world. So that's perestroika um, restructuring. Were the were those three things that you just described uh, applicable to the entire 
union? Yes. So there weren't any special economic zone Shenzhen type? No. Okay. No, it's uh, applicable to any business anywhere in the union. Then we get to Glasnost, which is harder to translate, but it you, you get the closest ones tend to be things like uh, publicity or openness or transparency. And this was a relaxation on state control of information. So there was limited reinstatement of freedom of speech and freedom of the press, which is not something that the Soviet Union has had up until now. There is one state-controlled newspaper called Pravda, which means truth, which is one of the great ironies of the USSR, in my opinion. Yep. Gorbachev goes, listen, I'm the new guy here. Let's shake things up. Let's get rid of some of this corruption that's definitely been going on and everyone knows is going on, but we're not going to talk about it because everyone's involved in it. And so let's just keep it under wraps. No more of that. We need to, again, get our economy back on track. And some of that means, or, or some of what that means is political reform. So they start releasing data on things like economic performance, which is not something that they've done traditionally. At um, all? At all. Well, mm, yes and no. Real numbers, not so much. That uh, would be sp- the... Speeches about the prosperity of the Soviet Union, lots, all the time. Everything's right. great. Don't worry about it. But also data on things like approval rates, uh, infant mortality, Ooh. homelessness and unemployment like getting some real stuff out there what was the timeline for this shift in terms of which which shift the the, impl- so er, the Gor- implementation of glasnost and perestroika gorbachev came in and you said in 85 85 and he implemented the measures of perestroika and glasnost over... 86 87 so this was a very rapid change yes and I mean, both both of these initiatives were rolled out. Like it wasn't as though all of this happened, you know, all at once. But it was over a very limited number of years. Gorbachev was very committed to this idea of reforming the Soviet Union, and he felt that the suppression of civilians' rights and the policies of ignoring the needs of the citizens was the main reason that the Soviet Union was lagging so badly. He also had, I mean, he had some personal hangups about what exactly was going on with the citizenship. He actually didn't drink and blamed a lot of the issues that were going on on things like uh, alcoholism and drug use. Russia to this day is one of the, you know, highest users of alcohol in the world. Like they're, they're incredibly heavy drinkers. And that's, that's going to be a tough thing to change about that society. That's not something that you do overnight. But, you know, to his credit, at least he didn't try legislating it prohibition style. Yeah, no, that's for someone who themselves doesn't drink. That that's a that's a great thing that he avoided. Oh, especially in an authoritarian regime. Yeah, <laughs> he could have very easily done that. He would have just said, "Okay, no more drinking," and yeah. then. However, given given the fact that it is endemic in their society as a problem, I feel like. There's not a lot of things you could say this is changed by fiat and have a revolution, mm-hmm. but that might be one of them. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I can't imagine the level of rioting if that had been the case, and I'm sure he knew that. Gorbachev is not... This this story is going to end up painting him as making a lot of huge mistakes. Gorbachev was not an unintelligent man. Personally, I think the best way of reading Gorbachev is 
uh, a very well-intentioned individual who lost control of things very quickly through no fault of his own or well, very little fault of his own, I should say. Thus far, he sounds like a, just a, a forward-thinking and perceptive person who's just making a lot of changes fairly quickly. Mm-hmm, really quickly. But again, this isn't necessarily the the you know unprecedented in Russian history, or especially 20th century Soviet history. These kind of huge social experiments tend to go into place very quickly when you have a single leader who can just snap their fingers and make it so. This is, you know, the the, the uh, industrial reforms under Stalin come to mind immediately. The amount that he industrialized the country over a very short period of time. I mean, he had two five-year plans back-to-back where basically all he did was ramp up industrial production, which was just, it, it gave the country absolute whiplash, right? Like it's not, you know, when, when, when the revolution happened, I believe under 20% of the population was even considered urban at that point in time. Something like, you know, something like uh, 82% of the population was uh, agrarian farmers, basically. Yeah. And I'll, I'll double check that stat. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's accurate, but yeah, that's, that's going off of memory. So I'll, I'll put that in the notes. But, you know, by the time Gorbachev rolls around, 66 or so percent of the population is living in, in uh, cities. Oh, wow. Possibly more. And that's, un, you know, that's, it's not really been that long. It's been 60, 70 years, 60 years. Yeah. So yeah, they've, they've done these huge, you know, grand scale reforms before. It's just that this is really the first one that kind of acknowledged the corruption of its predecessor uh, other than like the communist revolution itself, like that constantly blamed things on the Tsarist regimes. Right. But to actually throw Stalin himself under the bus uh, that's bold, very bold. So, you know, you've got these reforms to business policies. You've got uh, this restructuring of, t- to some extent, the party itself as well, streamlining things there. And even looking at some military reforms, because uh, as soon as he started looking into the military, he realized that it's very poorly managed. And then this new data coming out on, you know, actual survey data about the USSR itself, um, real health information, freedom of the press, uh, relaxing of, of party controls over speech. It all sounds really good and under different uh, circumstances might have been very, very positive for the USSR. But that section that I mentioned before, the 80s were going pretty badly. We, we're there. We're there. Yeah. So maybe we'll take a quick break to just kind of prepare ourselves and when we come back we'll talk about just how badly the 80s were going for the ussr okay right we're back here on hi 101 with dan mcginnis Mm -hmm. and the 80s were going pretty badly how badly very very badly let's talk about all the things that went super badly for the ussr in the 80s it's interesting how a huge number of very small or not necessarily small, but definitely survivable on their own items can kind of snowball and contribute to the downfall of an entire political institution. But, you know, here we are, no USSR anymore. So absolutely possible. The first one that I wanted to mention was in 1983, there was a flight, Korean Airlines 007, 
that was uh, shot down by the Soviet Union. This was a passenger flight. It got a little bit off course, ended up in technical Soviet airspace, and so fighter jets were dispatched, and cruise missiles were used to destroy the plane, killing 269 people. All passengers and crew were killed. What a terrible accident. You know, the funny thing is it wasn't even considered an accident because the Soviet Union said, you know what, this was a spy mission. That's the only reason they were going to be there. We know they were there to spy on us. Don't think so. No. It was a flight going from New York to Seoul. And the way that you fly from New York to Seoul is you go through Alaska because you want to stay above ground as much as possible. And it's one of those things that doesn't seem to make much sense on a flat map, but on a round globe, you kind of go, oh, okay, that's actually a pretty straight line. Great that makes circle, sense. Great circle distances are unexpected. Yeah, they're, they're a weird, weird thing. And it really takes, I, I find it really takes looking at an actual physical globe to wrap my head around them. They, they never seem to quite make sense any other way for me. Like about 60% of my problems, I'm going to blame this on Mercator. <laughs> Dan, I'm not talking about map types with you. Not again. We do this too often. That isn't even a joke. It's too often. Anyways, it's interesting stuff, but not here. Not now. One of the people on the plane was Larry McDonald. Larry McDonald was uh, the United States House of Representatives uh, member from Georgia. So oh, they killed a U.S. politician. Nothing bad can happen here. Oh, no. The uh, Soviet Union joined in the search and rescue operation. I just made air quotes for everybody that's just listening to this. They were combing the sea looking for wreckage just like everybody else. And basically what they were hoping to prove was that like, yeah, this was a spy plane because uh-oh. Just looking for you know, a plane full of strangely homogenous black suits. I guess. Weird pens that shoot out grappling hooks. Neck darts? I don't know. Whatever those pens do. Whatever the situation needs, I guess. Umbrella darts? Yeah, that works. That's that's one aspect of Soviet history that we're, we're not going to talk too much about today, but man, their assassinations were next level. Mm-hmm. What's up with that stuff? Actual umbrella darts. Look that up. There was a guy actually killed with an umbrella dart why how very creative very. i feel like they could have just shot him i guess it turns out and we found out we found this out years later that they the soviets actually found the black box day 50 of the search and they took it and they analyzed it and realized that there was nothing on there that even remotely supported their story didn't specifically uh deny their story but as far as they could tell from the recording this was just a normal passenger flight that they shot down oh so they they just didn't mention to the rest of the world that they found that nope they didn't mention it again until until after the soviet union fell this got declassified in the fallout of all of that but like up until the 80s it's kind of important to understand that world sentiment towards the USSR throughout the 70s had kind of cooled 
or or kind of warmed a little bit. They weren't as hostile as they'd been throughout the 60s. Was it because Stalin was dead now? <laughs> uh, that that didn't hurt. I mean, he'd been dead for quite some time, but no, I mean, a lot of that came had from... He, hmm? Had he? <laughs> I, I think so. I don't know now. I'm not sure. I'm questioning everything. Two words, robot Stalin. I'm just saying. You never know. Those Soviet scientists, who know who's, who knows what they were up to? This event in particular really kind of turned, uh, you know, world sentiment against the Soviets in a big way, uh, especially China, Japan, Korea, uh, as well as Europe, who are kind of going like, guys, like, calm down a little. It was just a passenger plane that was a little off course. Like, we know you hate the Americans, but like, like, chill little bit just a bit like you know they have spy satellites now right like that plane is not gonna do anything and it yeah their their reputation took a massive dive over that interestingly enough this is this event led to the declassification of gps technology for use in commercial airline flight i don't know if you know about this but up until the 80s there was some limited access to it but it was like intentionally fuzzed yeah like quite a bit by the army yeah, it was, it was really, essentially useless. It, it, it was basically useless, yeah. They went, well, maybe maybe this is a good reason to have better tracking of where we're at because, yeah, this was, like, it wasn't even necessarily something you could put down. Te- like, technically it was pilot error, but it was a very, very, very understandable error that he made. It's also worth mentioning that the Americans were conducting air exercises in the general area around that general time which made the soviets a little bit trigger happy but you know once you've shot down a plane full of nearly 300 people eh, people forget about the the stuff that might have made you a little bit edgy doesn't look good at all so you've got the world turned against you on that one you've got and it never happened again uh, sorry continue yikes You've got the Soviet war in Afghanistan, as I mentioned uh, before, going on since December of 1979. It's been called the Soviet Vietnam, which is really all you need to know about how terrible things went for them there. And really was a template for how the war in Afghanistan that we would think of contemporarily uh, would end up going. You roll in there with your giant conventional army basically steamroll everything very quickly and then spend years mired in guerrilla warfare with a population who is completely unwilling to be cowed in any way. And they ended up just throwing so much money and so many resources at this war that it ended up being just this massive black hole. There's some uh, suggestions that they may have actually been kind of lured into the the conflict at least somewhat intentionally by the americans or at least the americans wanted to lure them into it my understanding is that the cia was providing support to oh they absolutely were but in terms of actually the timeline as to when they got into the war when they started supporting the mujahideen and how much somebody at the cia basically went hey maybe we can convince the russians to invade afghanistan this is going to go super badly for them who would bother invading afghanistan how much that happened? Hey, uh, Vietnam sucked, right? Well, I've got this idea. Basically, yeah. 
There, there's anyway. There's there's some reports that they basically tried to get them involved. Whether or not they would have gotten involved either way is really the question. There, the American support for the Afghani insurgents is not under any question whatsoever. That was basically the end of the Carter administration's like detente policy towards the USSR, where they were just kind of like, well, let's not get involved. If we don't get involved in this stuff, uh, if we don't have to, then we'll avoid you know antagonizing the USSR and we can avoid um, situations like Vietnam for ourselves in the future. But it was too good an opportunity to pass up, so they went for it. OCIA. Yeah, they really can't help themselves. Always getting their fingers and stuff. Yeah, we're not going to linger on the war too much. Really what happened was that the main uh, administration in Afghanistan at that point was sympathetic towards the Soviet Union. These insurgents were not. They were looking for an independent Afghanistan. And so when they began uprising against the the established government, the Soviet Union went in to support them and ended up getting drawn into this long protracted war against the insurgents who would eventually end up taking over the the country and and you know through several iterations would eventually become uh, the taliban but that's a completely different episode that we're not going to be doing for a couple decades was oil at play in afghanistan at this point not not oil actually um in afghanistan but there are pipelines that the ussr well that Russia uses now that mm-hmm. go across Afghanistan, if my understanding is correct. Yes, and, and some of that did play into it, but some of it is also that, you know, the USSR did have kind of their own version of the Truman Doctrine of, you know, not letting any country, you know, fall from communism. It's kind of the, the mirror image of not letting any country fall to communism, where basically they needed to, they, they, they needed the political support pretty badly at that point in time. Uh, they had lost favor with the the Chinese, for example, that, you know, they really didn't have that that political support anymore, um, which would just be compounded by, you know, the Reagan's visits to China and the whole opening of the East and all of that, right? Not Reagan. Nixon. Uh, Nixon, sorry. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the pipelines were a big, big part of that. Afghanistan itself doesn't have a lot in the way of resources really except for you know the opium trade <laughs> largely available resources i should say um it's it's not well uh well used but yeah those those pipelines it's it it was it was super critical to uh the ussr which had been which had become a major uh oil power that was a major part of their economic uh success throughout the 70s uh which brings me to my next point um oil prices hitting an all-time low. Uh, you know about the OPEC oil crisis in the 70s? Uh, a sketch of it. Outline uh, basically, of it. all of these oil-producing um, countries uh, basically turned off the taps to drive up the price of oil, which led to massive energy shortages um, throughout the world. One of the, peop- or one of the players that came out best out of this crisis was the USSR who went we're not part of OPEC we'll sell you oil no problem let's do this thing and especially Europe bought oil from the USSR and things went pretty well uh, as well as natural gas especially um, but crude oil as well the thing is the way that the energy crisis really worked out is that 
a lot of countries decided to become more OPEC independent, both in the places that they sourced their oil and in the ways that they use crude oil. I mean, uh, um, fuel efficiency of vehicles alone went up by something like 30% over the 70s. Like there was a massive push towards just, you know, hey, maybe this isn't going to be around forever. Maybe we need to use it a little bit better. Let's engineer a fix to this problem. And so they did. To the point where when the OPEC oil crisis ended and all of these OPEC uh, countries were willing to offer more competitive rates for oil again, everyone went, eh, we're good. Like, we've got enough. There was, it, it was called an oil glut. They had so much oil on the market that it drove prices on oil way down. And oil got super cheap in the early to mid-80s, which, you know, is great for the end consumer, but for a country dependent on oil for their economy, like, say, Soviet Union, doesn't go so good. Particularly centrally planned non-market economies. Mm -hmm. Exactly. They did not have the flexibility to ride out something like an oil glut. So that super wasn't good. Also, the U.S. was kind of putting stuff in place in terms of market controls to limit the uh, Soviet Union's ability to sell to Europe, namely keeping natural gas prices from other sources artificially low to the point that they were sometimes taking a loss on it, but they'd rather take a loss than let the Soviet Union make money off of natural gas to Europe. Sounds like the U.S. I, I mean, their economy was doing not too bad at that point in time, at least in that arena. They could afford it, so they did. It's just kind of how they rolled at that point in time. I don't know. Soviet or the uh, the Cold War was a weird era for just economies in general. They they did very irrational things. Not that economies tend to be terribly rational ent- irrational entities, but yeah, I don't were, know what you're talking about. <laughs> there were some particularly strange decisions made there, which brings me to Ronald Reagan, President of the United States. And uh, known Gipper. <laughs> defeater of communism, as you may know him. No, not at all. He likes to think of himself that, or he liked to think of himself that way, certainly. But, yeah. Ronald Reagan's an interesting guy, especially now that we're far enough past his actual president presidency to talk about things like his legacy. Um, it's amazing to hear the number of different perspectives on his political career and his political legacy. Um, that kind of come up when talking about the man they vary greatly and we won't get too much into all of that stuff but um, I don't think anyone would disagree that the man hated communism that's that's pretty there's there's a consensus there I think that seems reasonable there were a number of things that he did that made things much more difficult for the USSR and so like as I said in the introduction of this one it's not as though the United States didn't do anything but you know, there, there are some factors among many that, that really lead to the decline of the Soviet Union. The first thing is that Reagan really ramped up military spending in the early to mid-80s. And, you know, there is that whole mutual assured destruction thing going on with the ICBMs and the nuclear warheads that can blow up the Earth several hundred times over. I don't know what the actual number is. It's probably higher than that. It's really sad numbers. There are thousands and thousands and thousands of warheads. It's crazy. There's also the more practical elements of the U.S. Uh, military, uh, pr- more practical than nukes. Um, like, I, I believe around this time is when they really ramped up production of aircraft carriers. Yeah. The multi-billion dollar investments. Super carriers. Yeah. 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 They got 
yeah, military spending was phenomenal in, in this uh, in this era. The, the U.S. was actually spending seven percent of their GDP on the military, and the U.S. GDP was not small. No. The USSR throughout the Cold War had been trying their best to uh, match military spending in the United States, just to be able to keep up to maintain their status as a world superpower because you let your military fall far enough behind and you kind of lose that status. So they were trying to match basically dollar for dollar or materiel for materiel, however you want to classify that, except that their their economy had tanked so badly through these other factors that they were spending about 27% of their GDP on military. Oh. Over a quarter of production value of, of gross domestic product was going to the military. And this is the same military that Gorbachev is talking about trying to reform because it's so poorly managed and so bloated that it's completely like it's a, a, it's a wasteful entity just trying to keep up and not even like match it, but just keep up enough that they'd be a match. They knew they were going to be in second place. It's just mind boggling. Sounds sustainable. (laughs) So they've got a smaller economy to begin with. It's a completely isolated economy other than trading with a couple of extra Soviet nations you know, economic powerhouses like North Korea and Cuba. Soviet pals. Uh-huh. Um, that just aren't going to help. Vietnam within a decade of the Vietnam War is not going to help. Vietnam now is not going to help. Like, it's, it's just there isn't enough economic power there. So they're lagging in real terms. They're... They're mired in Afghanistan, so they're throwing military resources at that while still trying to match the uh, military growth of the United States, whose main military interventions at this point are, you know, the Iran-Contra crisis, selling weapons to uh, Iran and funding revolutionaries in Bolivia. Like, that's that doesn't take that much money. Not at all. So... They can't, they, they just can't keep up, right? Like, it's impossible. They also have less uh, efficient production just because Soviet production methods are so far behind. And they, I mean, a lot of the espionage that's happening at this point in time isn't about military or politics. It's about industry. It's trying to figure out how do they make cars so well, you know? Like, like stuff like that, which is kind of sad almost. This focus on military spending also meant that consumer goods production basically froze at 1980 levels for the rest of the decade one of the things that the soviets always had trouble figuring out about the american economy is how much of the growth came from consumerism and how much of the innovation came from consumerism because they weren't getting better fighter jets because they were throwing government contracts at it they were getting better fighter jets because the people who are getting the military contracts were also making passenger airplanes which doesn't have anything to do with uh, with military or with government spending at all that's all being driven by a population who has 
purchasing power, basically. Especially when you consider that constraint breeds innovation and trying different uh, projects with different sets of constraints will naturally expose an engineering team to more innovation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the Soviet problem was kind of a, a combination of both not having enough constraints and having too many constraints all at the same time and all in the wrong places. It's, it's, I don't know. It's, it's just very, very odd that the way they decided to plan all of this economic stuff was, I'm, I'm just amazed that they didn't have any sort of um, bidding process involved in it or very limited bidding processes involved in it, because that's really how you find better contracts. It's just that there's so much corruption and so much um, nepotism and and um, favoritism within the system that these contracts aren't being properly bid on. They're being handed to people who you're trying to do favors for. It's a bad system for innovation. True, but when it was set up, it was also not that far off from the telegraph being a popular tool. Oh, absolutely. That's That's... Absolutely true. And that's a lot of the problems with the Soviet Union at this point is that, you know, they, they've not only forced an incredibly agrarian society to accept a terribly urban system of economy and government, but they also did this forcing during one of the most breathtakingly fast moving centuries of innovation and development on a technological level that's that's ever happened up until now. I mean, comparing the 20th century to the 19th century is it, it's the the amount of growth is just astounding. I don't you know, when you when you actually read Marx, you know, he's he's talking about owning means of production in terms of the guy who owns the water mill that runs a you know, a cotton gin. Like it's like it's not it's who not owns about the loom. Yeah, it's it's not about the microchip industry or industrial era like it's it's not it's not about things like computers and 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 fighter jets and any of this stuff like they couldn't have possibly anticipated this stuff and strong arming your way through that process through a single bitter centrally planned system i mean i don't know if you could have made that work with you know, even leaving the corruption out of it, it would have been very difficult to do so, certainly. But the the level of corruption that's involved in that completely dooms it. Back to our friend Reagan, um, there was this little thing called uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI. You may have heard of it referred to as Star Wars. Announced in 1983, basically Reagan said, mutually assured destruction is dumb. But like, not in a way where I wish no one had nukes, in a way where I think it's dumb that we can't just win it. We're Americans. Let's figure this out. And so he was proposing this massive system of a combination of both ground-based missile defenses and orbital platforms for incapacitating ICBMs that would basically render any Soviet missile attack completely ineffective and giving the United States the ultimate leg up on atomic warfare. Death rays and missiles in space. Mm -hmm. Nothing uh, can go wrong. This worried the Soviet Union. 
understandably, because mutually assured destruction was basically the only thing preventing the United States from completely dominating them militarily. I mean, in every other aspect of the military, the, the United States completely had them covered. No questions asked. But they still had their nukes, and that was basically all they had to hang on to to kind of keep that bargaining chip on the table to keep their status as a superpower. If that's rendered ineffective, they've got nothing. Big problem. Very big problem. And that's a huge animal to be cornering. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Now, I mean, SDI was nowhere even close to ready to implement. It was a it was a theory. It was something that they were talking about maybe starting to develop. It was not practical in 1983. It's, you know, it was minimum 10 years of development off and that's assuming that they actually put the kind of resources into it that they would like you know, another like real program, you'd have to throw a lot of resources at it to make this work. And, and what I've read is that it likely wouldn't have worked very well. No, probably not. You know, it depends on it depends on your criteria for success, right? I mean, they they never even really got around to testing beyond like some very preliminary stuff. And until you start doing that in a practical manner, you're not gonna get a very effective system of deployment. The laser stuff was questionable at very best. I mean, physical barriers are way more effective on things like giant ICBMs, but everyone focused on the lasers because they were cool. And they are they, they were cool. They still are cool. My favorite one is Project Excalibur, which is a great name for a space laser. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. That is the best name. So it wasn't really feasible, but it also like wasn't out of reach. Like that's that's the real takeaway here. Is it wasn't that, implausible. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, there were a lot of critiques about you know, oh, this wouldn't be able to deal with say a, a submarine launched missile. Well, it wasn't designed to be. It never like they never said it would be. They said this would be good for rendering an ICBM attack ineffective, and that's what it was going to do. Uh, maybe it was by deploying a giant space net, which was one of the plans. Maybe it was with a laser. Who knows? We'll find out. We'll figure it out. The intent Reagan. was to figure it out. You know, testing things like space lasers, is it? It's expensive. You could, you could call that expensive. But Reagan really hated commies. And he was willing to devote the resources. Like a slightly more, slightly more palatable McCarthy. Yeah, kind of. Except he's the president and not just like head of a like terrible inquisition by the Senate that's definitely not going to work out. Um, a lot more palatable there. Yeah. Anyways, there was a chance that SDI would violate the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which I love as a thing, which I was always under the impression that's, uh, that it was um, basically saying that you couldn't weaponize space. That's not quite true what it says is that you can't put nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction in space but regular missiles a-okay well that's the thing right like it's it's it's, where's the where's where's the line like what do you consider a or what do you define a, a weapon of mass destruction as there were certain proposals that definitely wouldn't have worked for example some of the nuclear powered lasers that were on the drawing board. I'm not even joking. That was a... Somebody came up with a nuclear-powered laser in space 
and he probably loved that project had a heart attack it was it was too good he the knew entire, he'd never come up with anything better the entire team that worked on that every single man and woman on that team would have just been like this is the best we're doing nuclear powered lasers in space high fives every day i just can you imagine the satisfaction with which you'd go to sleep every night knowing that you put in a hard day's work designing a nuclear space laser and knowing that tomorrow you go back to work on a nuclear space laser? It'd be pretty great until you thought about any of the consequences, but... The question is, would you? You'd be able to avoid it for a long time. For a very long time, I think. I'd like to think of myself as a relatively moral person. I think I'd be able to put it out of my head for a while. Adam Blesky, nuclear-powered space laser expert. Ah, I love it. I love it so much. But yeah, that, that that puts a lot of that puts a lot of just psychological pressure on the USSR because mutually assured destruction has basically been the thing saving them from invasion by the West since they developed their own nuclear weapons. Basically. So the 40s, the late 40s. That going away would be a very, very, very big problem for them. And the fact that it wasn't ready yet doesn't make them sleep any easier. And then the last thing that was really, really bad about the 80s was the Chernobyl nuclear plant meltdown, which occurred in 1986, was a horrible disaster. Could have been a far worse disaster if it wasn't for some very heroic people who managed to contain the, uh, the incident, but was still just absolutely devastating. I hate I hate reducing it to these terms, but was a PR nightmare for Gorbachev because he had just put into place this uh, policy of glasnost, of transparency, and then this nuclear meltdown happens, and the first instinct of the entire party is like, okay, we can't tell people how bad, how bad this is. This is not, we, we can't tell people about this. And they actually didn't for a while until people started being like, uh, you need to, like, you're, you're talking this big game about transparency, you need to you need to let people know what's going on here. And I mean, to be fair, I don't think they really knew the the full like just how bad it was for the first few days, but they dragged their heels on letting the cat out of the bag on that one. And for them to go, okay, we're gonna do transparency now. First big thing we're gonna tell you about is a massive nuclear meltdown, the likes of which have never been seen before. Have a good day, everyone. So transparency. Yours truly, Great, the right? Communist Party. Like it's 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 terrible timing for, you know, relinquishing your death grip on media exposure. Made them look real bad, and there were practical concerns as well. I mean, the just the initial layout of the the rescue efforts of the containment uh, efforts, just dealing with that whole situation in in real terms cost them 18 billion rubles, which at the time was about equivalent to the U.S. dollar. They pegged it to pretty close to what a U.S. dollar was worth. Wow. Uh, I ran the conversion quick. It's something I've been doing more and more often on this show because it's helpful to know real dollars. And people kind of forget that 30 years ago doesn't seem that long. Values have changed a lot. Oh, yeah. A lot. Uh, It's about $39 billion. And that's just the initial containment. That's not even considering future value of a very, very important nuclear power plant because they were starved for energy at that point in time to the point that they actually kept one of the reactors running for a while after the meltdown. Ooh. Yeah. 
Yeah, to the point where they didn't stop the expansion uh, construction project on the reactors for like a little bit after the 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 meltdown. Like it, it didn't take them long to stop, but like they kept building more reactors right there for like a little bit before they went, okay, uh, what are we doing here? Yeah. The ongoing cost to Belarus where a lot of the fallout was kind of collecting the just like the human cost of the health problems and lives lost and the the complete you know the, that 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 city Pripyat cannot be like it's it's abandoned now essentially because you can't live there some of it is is PR some of it is just like no one would live there but yeah it's it's horribly irradiated shouldn't shouldn't live there probably losing an entire city to a disaster like that it's a big deal as well as just the again international reputation um for the soviet union it's kind of like they've always had this reputation for being you know poor workmanship and bad training and incompetent workers and and all of this which chernobyl absolutely confirmed for everybody who is watching yeah deservedly it was it was absolutely an avoidable incident. It was completely avoidable. If you look into Chernobyl at all, it's 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 amazing how many points along the way that disaster could have been prevented in some way or another and just wasn't. There were there was poor training, there was poor oversight, there was even like poor instruction manuals. Like just everything. It was asking for a disaster. When you start an era of of government transparency and openness with your citizenship, that's not a good way to start it off. The fact that it happened just a couple months after Glasnost was first put into place. It was only a couple of months. Yep. Oh. Mm-hmm. So they're already getting hammered with all of these reporters going through historical data that they've released. And now they're forced to make a statement on Chernobyl that... If it had happened a year before, uh, probably would have been covered up very comfortably. Yeah, the international community would have noticed given the shift in weather patterns and satellite imagery. But Oh, of course. But their openness with it also really worried the international community because that's unusual for the, the, the USSR to say anything like that. Why would they admit to it? That, what, what are they doing over there? What's their game? I know they're saying transparency, 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 but like, what's what are they what are they playing at here? Were they actually being more transparent with the rest of the world too? Like, they certainly would have the internal dialogue, but were they making you know, English press releases? No, but by extent, well, I mean, they've they've always made some English press releases, you know, heavily moderated by the state media, sure. right? Um, it's more that when you have that level of freedom of the press, it's a lot easier for the information to get back to the West one way or another, even if they're not necessarily making right. statements for the West. Okay. Um, it's much easier to get your ha- your hands on uh, information about what's going on in the USSR. And I mean, while the Soviet citizens are getting all this information about just how badly things are going, the West is getting the same information. And in a lot of cases, they're shocked. They knew things were bad there, but they didn't know how bad they were. I mean, the the economy is going so poorly that by the late 80s, they've returned to wartime style food rationing. Wow. It's it's awful. Absolutely awful there. The reaction to Chernobyl internationally, because they've come out and, and said it, is it's it's disproportionate. People are just absolutely horrified. I was reading one article about 
uh, how at the time there were hundreds, if not thousands of women in Greece, which isn't terribly far away, asking doctors for abortions because they were concerned about uh, fetal exposure to radiation because of this disaster. Wow. Un- unwarranted, unfounded. Like the, the, the radiation levels that anyone was exposed to that far away was completely not medically dangerous in that sense. The no. risk wasn't high enough to, to warrant that. But, and, and, and the prevailing winds blew the fallout northeast. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's also, you know, it's, it's not as though everyone who was, who was requesting one was, was granted one, obviously. But the fact that that many women were requesting that and citing that as the reason for it is horrifying. <laughs> it's awful. And the Soviet Union can only take so many blows in terms of their international rea- uh, international um, reputation. They've been surviving for years now on international aid in one way or another. I mean, the, the United States was sending them shipments of grain already starting in the 70s just to tide them over from uh, potential famines. It's, it's kind of weird how long we actually propped the Soviet Union up for all of our talk about wanting to get rid of it well well they still have nukes that's that is true and i mean that is certainly a a concern there uh political instability is not good at the best of times mix in the world's second largest arsenal of icbms and yeah maybe just send them the bread maybe just send them the bread but the food situation there, the, the the economic situation there, all of it had gone so bad. And I mean, this is about the time in the very late 80s when there are stories about both Boris Yeltsin and Mikhail Gorbachev visiting the United States and being shown supermarkets. And both of them, independently, in different incidents, were so shocked by what they saw the sheer amount of food, the variety of food, the quality of food. They were so shocked that they asked to be taken to other supermarkets. To make sure it wasn't a prop set up by American PR machine. Gorbachev thought some of the highway systems were set up specifically for his visit. Wow. Have you ever heard the term Pachemkin village? Yes. Ironically, from a Russian statesman under Catherine the Great who would go ahead of Catherine setting up facades in front of these little rural villages so that she wouldn't feel so bad about the situations that her peasants were in. So she would feel like rural life was okay. Look at all of the flower boxes they have. Mm -hmm. They thought that these grocery stores were little Pachemkin villages. They They asked to visit multiple supermarkets and boris yeltsin has gone on the record later as saying that that was the moment that he lost faith in communism it's a good good reason to that's it's just it's just it's so heartbreaking to think that that's what that's what did it yeah it wasn't about ideology it wasn't about money it wasn't about you know it 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 came down to to the number of breakfast cereals you could get that's the whimper not the bang i agree so the 80s were going pretty bad, very, very badly. But, you know, with, with Glasnost and Perestroika, we'll see. Maybe we can turn things around. I find that ending an episode with, you know, a bit of a cliffhanger always brings people back for the part twos. So next time, I suppose I'll let you know whether or not the Soviet Union manages to 
make it through this crisis or not? I'm hoping yes. Edge of your seat, eh? I know. It's it's very compelling. No spoilers. We'll be back next time. The policies of Perestroika and Glasnost were certainly well-intentioned, and seemed at least theoretically sound. But as we know, within six years of their implementation, the USSR had ceased to exist. Next time, we'll look at how and why they backfired so badly, as well as the final days of the Soviet Union. That episode will be up on September 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101. Thank you.